Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Lonnie Klapak. She is the founder of Social Studio Coaching, a San Francisco-based dating relationship and life coaching company that specializes in teaching Silicon Valley techies social skills and emotional intelligence. Lonnie, can you tell me a little bit about who your clients are, what they do, and then why they hire you to coach them? Yeah. So I work with a lot. I'm in the Bay Area, and I work with a lot of men and women who are in the tech industry. So a lot of people from Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, big companies like that. And most of them want to have more ease and have more fun in connecting with people. So they want to make their relationships both at work, with their families, with their friends, and also their personal relationships um, feel better. And they want to feel more authentic in who they are when they're interacting with people. Okay, you said authentic, and I think that's an important word. Can you talk about this idea of authenticity, why it's important, and what the listeners can do to kind of be more authentic? Authenticity is really at the core of effective connection. So we need this in order to really connect with other people. And what I mean by that is that if we're not being true to who we are, we can't expect to meet people, date people, be in relationships with people who will be a good fit for us. So if we're promoting ourselves as somebody else, then what we'll end up doing is enroll other people in our made-up version of ourselves. And then they'll think that they're dating or working with that person rather than who we really are. Um, But being an authentic isn't really sustainable in relationships. So at some point they'll find out, they'll kind of see our true colors and, um, and then often the relationship will then crumble. Can you give me an example of that? So a lot of people with online dating profiles will want to kind of stretch the truth a little bit and make themselves look or sound smarter, more fit, more healthy, um, whatever it is, more than they really are, and uh, taller, thinner, all those things, younger, and then they'll go and meet somebody um, and maybe they'll kind of, they'll have that person believing them for a while, but then at some point the truth comes out and then the, and then the relationship dies. You you see a lot of this with online stuff, right? So people post on their Facebook, their, or Instagram, their idealized versions of themselves, or at least a lot of people often do this. When you're, you have an online dating profile and you're trying to sell yourself, I'm assuming that people are going to want to do this because they're going to want to show the most attractive sides of themselves. How can they balance this idea of how do I build attraction through an online dating profile, for example, and then being authentic or even just the feeling that they're being authentic? How, How do you balance these kind of two things? Great question. So I think what we forget often is that sometimes the most endearing things are the quirky, weird, um, kind of offbeat parts of ourselves because those are really the most human qualities. Um, And people love that and they can relate to that. So portraying ourselves as these idealized humans that are superhuman, people can't really relate to that because nobody is that way. So when we share, so I think that the balance to strike, and it can be a fine line, but is to reveal some of the more quirky parts about ourselves so that we're more accessible and relatable 
um, and then also include the things that are great and fantastic about us so that we're not, you know, making ourselves look bad, but we're making ourselves look real. It makes me think of it's kind of a tangent, but I was reading this book on Tim Burton recently and Tim Burton was saying that with the development of his art, one of the things that he, well, he's drawn, drawn a lot of monsters, right? And one of the reasons he's drawn monsters is because as a kid, he felt like he could, he couldn't really relate to the hero, like the buff, good looking hero. He thought of himself more as a freak and he could relate to the freaks. So he started drawing basically freaks or monsters, but in a very human way. And the consequence of that is, I mean, he's considered one of the most successful artists of our time because people do see themselves in his characters. I mean, it's, a, it's kind of a kind of a far tangent, but I think that there's elements here that um, kind of parallel what you're saying, that you don't have to be the superhero. Most people can't relate to the person who's perfect. To the person who's like them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that like what I see as a common, um, a common thing that people are doing with their online profiles is they're making it really cookie cutter. So it's like, you know, I love to go out and eat really good food with my friends and try new things and go traveling and drink wine. And it's like, okay, who doesn't like to do those things, right? It's the things that we, you know, everybody likes that. So then it's so general that we don't even end up getting a sense of who this person is. Um, I was just talking to a friend of mine yesterday about, um, about dating and relationships, and she said that her brother and her brother's now wife met on OkCupid, and he had put that um, he had chickens. And she, the only reason she went out with him was because he had said that he had chickens on his profile, and she had chickens too. And now they have like, you know, this huge chicken coop and have a whole farm together and stuff. So that was the point of connection. Had he not written that, maybe he would never have met her. I mean, there's so much of that, right? Because people oftentimes, at least in my experience, what I think a lot of listeners who are listening to this, they oftentimes try to fulfill a standard of what they think is attractive, right? I, I like to take, I mean, this, the, the, like the, one of those things, like cliches is like, I like to take long walks on the beach, right? right. It's such, such bullshit. Um, totally. Yeah. But they try to conform to what they think that people are going to find attractive as opposed to just kind of being themselves and then letting people sort through, for example, an online dating profile, sort through for what each person finds attractive because different people are going to find different things attractive. Exactly. It's attraction is subjective. So just like art, which is, you know, what I like to look at being social as a form of art. So an art can be really subjective. You know, some people think that a piece of art is beautiful. Other people hate it. You actually use that term, right? A social artist. Can you describe what that, what is a social artist and why being one is important? I really, I believe that interacting with people can be art. So the way of the social artist is to look at each interaction as an opportunity to co-create art. So to be playful, to be curious, taking risks, expressing yourself, these are all forms of social art. So for example, if I'm at a party or a gathering that's boring or in a conversation that's a little bit lackluster, I'll think to myself, how can I spice this up? You know, what can I say or do in this conversation to crack it open? Where is the aliveness? 
you know, I'll be tracking for aliveness and noticing, you know, the high points in the conversation where the person kind of lights up or gets really excited about something. And then I'll know, okay, there's a lot there. Like there, there's a lot of richness to explore there. And so I'll ask a directed question um, in, in that, about that. So, you know, and I'll get just really curious, like what's really going on in there for that person? You know, how can, how can I, how can together, how can we create some chemistry here and, and really have this be more interesting? and more alive. Um, and so I look at all of that as a form of art. You also wrote that life is a social experiment. Can you explain what you meant by that um, and how l- listeners can benefit from living life as a social experiment? Yeah, I'd like to look at, at all things social as an experiment. And I think what it does by taking that perspective on is it makes things a lot more fun and it takes a lot of the pressure off. So instead of so for men, I know you work with a lot of men, so for men, in, instead of a safety and attractive woman, and they think, okay, you know, I want to approach them, I have to do a perfect approach, and I have to say the right thing, and if I don't, then I'm going to get rejected, and I'm going to do my shame spiral and feel miserable, and I'm never going to want to approach again. So instead of all that, it could be something like, okay, I'm just going to try something new. This is an opportunity for me to do a little experiment. I'm going to try this conversation technique that Chris was just sharing with me and um, see how it goes. And if I screw it up, then, okay, celebrate that I tried and, you know, not do that one again. And if it goes well, then great. And I can build off of that. So um, it, it really gives a lot of permission to mess up. And it gives a lot of permission to trial and error, which I believe is critical to the creative process. So art isn't always so precise. You know, it takes time playing around in the studio to create a masterpiece. What's well, trial, trial and error, right? Whether it's the development yeah. of a skill set or even the piece itself. Like most people, there's a, there's a vision in our society of the artist who imagines this masterpiece and then builds it, but a lot of it's just tinkering. You tinker with something, you make an adjustment, you tinker, you adjust, you tinker, you adjust, and then in the end you have this this I mean, an artist never thinks their product, I mean, their, their, their piece of art is ever totally finished. Right. Uh, but you you have something that is that you can look at and you can be proud of. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, what you just said made me think of, um, that the process itself is so important. I think in our society, in our culture, we get so fixated on the results. It's like we're, we're, we're we're so industrious and we're producing and we want to get the best results and, um, meet the objectives and all this stuff that's putting emphasis and pressure on the end, whereas the journey there is just as important. So how can we have fun tinkering around in the lab before we come up with the perfect, you know, line in a conversation or the perfect strategy to approach somebody or the perfect um, way to engage with our coworker or whatever it is. So to be able to have fun and play and and enjoy the whole process of interaction um, before we get to the end goal. I feel like exactly what you're talking about is is one of the reasons you see the proliferation of of matchmakers, right? Because I mean, where you work with a lot of people, I work with a lot of people, coaching them, teaching them through trial and error. How do you kind of build these skill sets? A lot of people want to run to the end result, and they don't have 
like the basis for how do you build a relationship. And, and even I think about when I was younger, just dating so many, there were so many relationships that kind of went sideways. And sometimes it, it, it was me and things that I did. And oftentimes it was stuff that, and I didn't know at the time I'd pick myself apart. I, I thought like, what's wrong with me? And it was women who were just young trying to figure out their own relationships and they were doing crazy shit. <laughs> and so what, what, what I explain to my clients now is, is that oftentimes, especially if they're dating someone who's younger, is that oftentimes younger women will destroy relationships, not because they want to, because they don't know any better. And it, and oftentimes it's not until they've made some mistakes and learn from those mistakes that they can actually be in a real relationship. I mean, would you agree with that? I do, yeah. I mean, I think a huge part of the coaching process that I go through with clients is around personal development and just having them get to know themselves more deeply. So really understanding who they are so that they can then know who they would be a good fit with and what they want. So what I see a lot of people in my practice, a lot of people will come in and say, you know, I want to be in a relationship and I'm lonely and I'm frustrated and I fucking hate dating, <laughs> you know, and are, are pissed off. And, and, and then I ask them what they want and they have no idea. And so then the process, which is totally fine, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just, then that's where we start is, okay, who are you and what do you want and what's going to work for you? I often find that that evolves as people get out there, right? So like as people go out and they start dating, as they start becoming sexually active, as they go through a few relationships, oftentimes the things that they imagine that they want are not the things that they find that they actually need to be happy. Yeah, it's a constant evolution, right? So not to, yeah, you know, have it be so cut and dry. It's, okay, now I know what I want and now I'm going to go and get that. But yeah, just stay open the unfolding of who they are and what they want as they start to really, as they start to learn through their interactions and dates with different people. I also think that I really like the idea of creative relationship design, which is something that I apply, have been applying in my own life for years, which, which to me means, um, you know, how can I create a relationship that's going to work for me and my partner? or me and my colleague, whoever it is. So, so that we're not conforming to the ideas about relationships that are instilled in us from society or culture, but rather we're looking at who am I and who is this other person and what's our chemistry when we come together and what's going what's gonna to work for us and then designing a relationship based on that. Can you give some specific examples? Let's see. So instead of, you know, falling into traditional gender roles around relationships where, you know, traditionally the guy works and makes the money and the woman stays home with the kids. Um, some friends of mine, the woman is the one with the powerful, you know, business empire and she is making all the money and her husband is the one staying home with the kids. And so they're a great example of a relationship design and saying, you know, looking at their relationship system and going, okay, what's going to work for us? And then designing accordingly rather than, okay, we have to struggle to try and fit ourselves into these boxes designed by society and tradition when they're really not fitting and they're not working. When I think about that, I also think about like people who have kind of alternative sexual relationships. Like there, there are people out there who just know that they're not going to be monogamous 
And so instead of lying to a partner that, hey, I'm going to be monogamous and my intents are monogamous and they cheat on them all the time, finding a partner for them that um, is okay with that or they're both like that or whatever, but um, they can maybe they have an alternative relationship, but they have the, the type of communication to kind of talk about these things in an adult way and build a relationship that actually works for them. Exactly. So I think that's where agreements are really important. Um, and to have a conversation with your partner about what are our agreements? You know, if, if you're going to be in an open relationship, what does that mean to be in an open relationship? There's so many versions of open relationship out there. Um, and so what's okay and what's not okay. And then how are you going to deal with um, conflict when it comes up? So I think it's really important to have almost like a, a structure around how to deal with deal with the hard, hard things when they arise. Um, and how are you going to come together to communicate? Are you going to have regular check-ins? Are you just going to talk about it when it comes up? You know, what happens in scenario X? What happens in scenario Y? So you really are looking at it together and designing it together. That in and of itself can be a really bonding experience. Now, how, how does somebody who is trying to design a relationship get to that point, right? Because you can't put on your online dating profile that um, like, like the, this is the relationship I'm trying to design or can you, how does somebody start down that path? And, and when does somebody um, like kind of bring up some of these bigger questions? Cause I think there's a lot of guys who are listening to this and they're, they're thinking, well, I can't like, how, how would I introduce this idea of X, Y, Z because I'm worried that she's going to reject me. So I get that question constantly. I think that's like one of the most common questions that I get from people is how soon, you know, when and how do I share with this person what I'm really into um, and what I'm really wanting to create. And I think that it's a lot sooner than a lot sooner is okay than most people think. Um, but it's hard to give an absolute, like on date three, you know, then it's okay to tell them that, you're into BDSM and that's the kind of sexual relationship that you want to have, for example, or that you want an open relationship or that, you know, whatever it is. And I think it's more about attunement and, and really tuning into, you know, is what's the relationship, what's the chemistry between me and this person? How much can I share? How quickly, you know, where can we, what can the container of our relationship hold? You know, even if it is the first date, you know, it's just like, you know, Chris, have you ever been in a conversation with somebody that you just meet and you're sharing like so much of yourself and it's, it's really comfortable to do that? Yep. Yeah. And then with other people, it can take years to get to that point where you feel comfortable sharing that, that information. So I think it's the same with when you're dating and um, you're really, you're practicing attunement. So you're really noticing what is the nature of my connection with this person and what's appropriate and what's possible. Um, but per your question, I think it's important to let them know earlier on um, if there are certain things that you're really clear about wanting or needing in a relationship and to put that on the table because there's a chance that that could be a deal breaker for them. And then there wouldn't be a point in continuing on dating for months and then disclosing that thing that's really important to you. And then if it's a deal breaker for them, then that's it. I mean, this really ties back to your idea of authenticity, right? So if you're authentic uh, or 
I would even describe it as transparent. I had a friend of mine who said you should live the most, the least secretive life you possibly can. But when you, who you are is consistent or who you project is consistent with who you really are. I think that people pick that up. And this idea of, there's this idea of judgment, right? When you are comfortable with yourself and the people around you don't feel like you're judging them, then I think people begin to open up. Yeah, definitely. And I think that um, we are least judgmental when we're really comfortable in ourselves. I think that a lot of judgment comes from jealousy and envy and wishing that we were other than than how we are, or wishing that we were different than how we are. Um, and then we judge other people when really it's they're, they're evoking something in us that maybe is unexplored or untapped. And it's triggering and it's activating because it's kind of calling forth that part in ourself that wants to be expressed. Okay, so let's say that somebody notices that they're inhibited and they, someone's listening to this, they think that there might be something in their past. Maybe they know exactly what it is. Maybe they don't. How, how do they explore that? Yeah, let's say that they're, they're kind of inhibited. Um, they're, they're being very judgmental uh, or they're being very judgmental of themselves. And it's something you said that hasn't been explored. If they're aware of it, how do they explore that? And if they're not aware of, aware of it, how do they figure out what that is? If they're not aware of it, how do they figure out what it is? I think they might have a sense of, whoa, something's happening in here. You know, I'm, I'm feeling stirred, you know, and then talking with somebody about it, like a coach, you know, and, and unpacking what's happening for them would be really helpful. If they are aware of it, um, then doing some work around that, I think it would be really helpful and hard to be specific because we're kind of speaking generally. But um, I think that, yeah, really looking at, okay, what's coming up for them. And if it is something that's untapped or unexpressed and there is a desire to explore that or express that, then looking at how can they go about doing that. Can you give a more specific scenario or example? Yeah, I'll give a personal one. I so recently, or no, about like a year ago, I was at a, I was at an event and there were people that were performing. It was an event of friends, a big event, and different people were performing and doing singing and um, really creative pieces of performance art. And I was sitting there watching and getting more and more like frustrated and feeling bad about myself and um, totally going into this like downward dark place. And I realized what was going on was, oh, I want to be up there doing that. And I'm not. And so it was really calling forth the part in me to be putting myself out there more. Uh, no, this is, this is fascinating. Yeah. And I think that a lot of clients come to me because they, they're, they're having that experience in their own life of seeing other people interacting or do whatever it is. Mostly it's, it's interacting or approaching women um, or having really juicy, interesting conversations and they don't do this. Oh, I want that. How do I, how can I learn? And so the process through the coaching is looking at, you know, how do we bring out that part of them that wants to come out? And what are the skills that they need to build in order to do that 
in a way that's useful and fun. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchrisma.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. Sometimes you talk about cultivating a magnetic personality. Can you explain what is a magnetic personality and and how somebody develops one? Yeah. So I think when I think of a magnetic person, I think of somebody who everybody wants to be around, somebody who walks into a room and people notice that person and gravitate towards them and enjoy being around them. So it's somebody who others feel good around. Um, and I think the components of magnetism, like what creates that magnet, magnetic quality are a couple different things, but at the core, I think it's about being open for connection, which is kind of a phrase that I like to use. Um, and what that means is, is, you know, having body language that says that you're open and available. So not slouching, not having your arms and legs crossed. Um, not looking down, you really have like open body language, your shoulders are relaxed, um, you're, you're alert to your surroundings, you're making eye contact with people that you see and maybe smiling, um, you look friendly and approachable. And energetically, your energy is, is open, but you kind of have that vibe of somebody who it would be easy to go up and talk to and ask a question to or introduce yourself to. Um, and I think that part of being open for connection also is, is having that feeling of like somebody's home, you're, you're present, um, you're get to knowable, um, and you're, you're curious and interested in other people. Um, I think another piece is about being a good listener and knowing when to engage and also when to just shut up and listen to the other person and be really present with them. Um, and how to attention, specifically for men, how to put attention on women in a way that isn't creepy and and that has them feel respected and adored. Can you give me an example of what that means? Because I think there are guys who, um, that's a fear for them. Their fear is like, okay, I'm if I approach girls uh, or I'm sexy forward or whatever, that I'm going to come off as creepy. And how, how do they navigate this environment in a way that they can pursue whatever their goal is. Maybe it's to, to build a, a social relationship. Maybe it's a, a work relationship. Maybe it's a sexual relationship. How can they do that? So I think that the creepy factor comes in the most when it's around 
when it's in the personal realm, so not so much in a work setting. Um, because I think, so I'll speak to that, because I think what creepiness is, is unexpressed sexual desire. Um, and there's like, there's a hunger when it feels creepy. It seems like there's a hunger in, in the man that they're not expressing. So it's like this withheld desire that the women pick up on. Um, it feels like a man wants something from them. I think this is a, gr- a great topic to explore. What, what are some things that guys do that are creepy? Like what specific things that guys do that are creepy that, that freak women out and what could they do differently? I'll speak to it on two different levels because I think one is like you can get really concrete with body language and eye contact and what they're saying. And, but I think even more important than that is the feeling, right? Because creepiness is like a, a feeling. And so it doesn't always live in physical, in a physical form, but it's kind of the, the energy or the feeling that is expressed from the guy that's being creepy. So the, for the first one, the more the physical form, I think it can look like eye contact that is too long, really lingering eye contact beyond what the woman is comfortable holding. So how does he know that? Well, that's the, yeah, that's the hard part is, is really being tuned in enough to know. So, um, you know, if the woman is, is makes eye contact and then looks away, um, and doesn't look back, you know, then I think that that's, it's, it's hard to, it's really hard to put absolutes on it because of, um, like I'm hesitating to be like, Oh, if it's more than 30 seconds, then that's creepy. Um, because it just depends. It's so case by case, um, which makes this, this material a little bit hard to just talk about because it's, it's easier to point, point it out or demo it and be like, okay, this is what's creepy. But I think that so there's, there's, there's that piece around eye contact. Then there's also if you're not respecting their personal space boundaries, that can be really creepy. So unwanted touch or even if it's just like on the arm or the hand or, um, or entering somebody's personal space bubble too quickly can feel a little bit creepy. How can a guy tell if, if he's entered her sp- personal space bubble too quickly? They will usually recoil and move away. And it might be subtle. It might even just be like shifting their hips to the other side away from the man. And, and what should a guy do if he's in that situation? Take a step back. Give some space. Maybe even look away to give her a little bit of space without his attention really focused on her. So that can be a good quick tip for having people feel a little bit more comfortable if it seems like they're impacted by your presence in a way that might not be that pleasant just look away kind of lean away or step away a little bit just give her a little bit more space and then see how, how it's going from there well if, if a guy does um, approach a girl and he, he let's say he touches her arm touches her shoulder he enters her space and she recoils does that mean that she'll never let him enter his personal space or no okay can you talk about that yeah, yeah so um you know, like I always say when I'm, when I'm working with men around how to approach, that you have to approach slowly, right? You don't have to be coming in hot on the approach, like running in and startling the woman. So I know that sounds really obvious and maybe even kind of silly, but people will do that. They'll move in too fast and it's like, whoa, oh, hello, suddenly here you are in my space and I didn't get a chance to see you coming. So I think it, 
So that's one thing is just to move in slowly. Um, and if you do startle her, you can recover, you know. It, it doesn't mean she'll never like you or she'll never let you in. But to, if, you've noticed, if you've noticed that she's startled or if you've noticed that you've crossed a personal space boundary, again, kind of step back and give her some more space. I think this is true not just about physical space, but it's probably true about emotional space as well. Yeah. Yeah. Do you absolutely. do you see this a lot? I do. Yeah, I see it a lot. People who, I mean, the the common problem is lack of attunement. So they're not di- they're not dialed into what's happening emotionally between them and the other person. Why do you think that is? I think it's a lack of emotional intelligence. I think it's a lack of being able to read people and know how to really be with people. And I think more globally, that's a result of partially um, all the technology that we're using now. So we're not, we're not like we're using texting and email and Facebook and Twitter to communicate things that are intimate and personal rather than face-to-face. And so as a result, we're not getting the opportunity to be standing with somebody or sitting with somebody or laying with somebody and tuning into their body and how they feel and what's happening on an emotional level between those people. So what you're saying is attunement is developed as a consequence of actually being in a situation with somebody, basically many trial and error. Yeah, trial and error and just practice. You know, because we're, as humans, we're hardwired for connection. So we're, you know, we're pack animals. We're people, people. So we don't, we don't do well in isolation. And now with all the technology, which can be great and can be used to bring people together, but it's so often misused and abused. And um, the result is more isolation. And so people aren't practicing this stuff and they're growing up on computers and then they don't know how to make eye contact and touch people and be with people. Uh, we were having a conversation earlier and we were talking about uh, me and, and uh, one of the guys on the team and we were actually talking about porn and we were saying that's one of the problems I think with pornography is that I, I think that the, there's a certain element, pornography fulfills like a certain real need, otherwise people wouldn't watch it. Like people are aroused when they watch or they hear other people having sex and anybody who's ever lived in a college dorm uh, or apartment uh, with uh, rowdy neighbors could attest to this, right? But the problem becomes n- not that um, that they're aroused by hearing or seeing people have sex is that they're not like when you're they're getting aroused or whatever someone's masturbating they're not interacting with another human being so what happens is they live through these fantasies they develop these sexual experiences they're not rooted in real human relationships so when they actually go into a real human relationship they want to immediately kind of fulfill all their sexual fantasies that they've been having with uh with you porn or or Pornhub or whatever and they don't know how to to get there in an organic way would you agree with that would you disagree I would love your thoughts since we literally just had this conversation before we had the call with you. Yeah, I mean, what you just said, the last part, what you just said around they don't know how to communicate, you know, what they want in an organic way. I think that that's a huge issue that comes up around sex is that people are not communicating with each other. Um, And that, you know, plays into our, our conversation just now about not knowing how to communicate, not knowing how to be with each other because of 
Um, so yeah, I think that that especially when it comes to sex, you know, we expect people to know what to do. We are too scared or too shameful to say, you know, this hurts or I want it like this or this feels good or whatever are the critical pieces of feedback that the partner needs in order to create a, the most pleasurable experience possible. And so what happens is that, you know, people don't say those things and then they have bad sex and then they withdraw or they don't get their needs met um, or there's a lot of shame that just lives in the sexual relationship. I feel like the guy's who are listening to this, I mean, the, the truth is like you, you get better in social situations by being in social situations, right? You get better at sex by having more sex. You get better at dating by dating. But oftentimes the guys, or at least some of the guys who are listening to this, I know that they're not really sure what's appropriate to start with, right? And so for certain, certain men who are listening to this, or even if there's some women listening to this, they become inhibited, too inhibited at the beginning uh, because they're worried, well, maybe they make a mistake and then they recoil emotionally, right? Because they didn't know what to do. They didn't have the experiences or, or maybe they never go far enough because of um, the way that they were raised or something in their past to actually build real chemistry. Like how, when a guy's getting started, how, how does he know like what he should do, what he shouldn't do? To, do you have any like kind of tips that the recoil was a good example that guys could use as a baseline? I think that the most important thing is or um, several really important things are, one is get out of your head. You know, like a lot of people who have anxiety, have social anxiety or who aren't very confident socially will just be so concerned with their performance that they get stuck in their head and they're worried about how, what they're saying or what they should say next, that they're not actually being present with the woman that's in front of them. So I think presence is huge. Um, and a great way to become more present and get out of your head is simply to put your attention on the woman in front of you. And then you can employ principles like curiosity. So, okay, there's this human being in front of me. Now I wonder what's going on in her world. How is she doing over there? What am I noticing about her right now? What's her energy like? How is she doing emotionally? What is her body language telling me? So being really curious and um, noticing what's happening for her. And then asking really good questions. Really good questions can be really sexy to women. So open-ended, curious questions that are not information gathering. And what, what I mean by that is like, that are not like, um, you know, say she says, oh, I had this amazing um, weekend and I went, I went camping this weekend. So instead of going, oh, where'd you go camping? Or how many people did you go camping with? Um, you would say, oh, what, what did you love about the weekend? What were some highlights from the weekend? Or it seems like this, this weekend was really important to you. What was so important to you about it? Right? So things that are about her rather than about the camping. So you want to draw out and engage the person. You want to make it about them, not about facts or information uh, because that stuff just isn't as personal so and it's not not like to say like you can't do that you can't ask where they're from or you know where they went or whatever but just to be really deliberate about making sure to 
tailor your questions so that they really draw out the person because that's why you're there. You want to know about her. You don't want to know about the state park that she went to. I was having dinner with a girl that I'm dating the other day and she asked me a question and, and one of the questions was, 10 years from now, like, where do you see yourself? It's something that affects. And I was like, oh God, I don't want to go down this, this path right now. Right. But what she, she said to me, or I started kind of immediately to recoil and say like, I just, I don't really want to talk about this right now. But then she goes, no, we're, we're being imaginative. I want you to be creative. So if you could do anything at 10 years from now, what would you be, do, what would you do? And she was actually looking for an imaginative answer. And, 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 uh, the answer was like, I would be in a spaceship, like looking down at, she's like, it was 4th of July. If it's 4th of July, 10 years from now, what would you be doing? I'm like, I would be like in a spaceship looking down at earth, like from the window of a spaceship. And she's like, okay, that's a good answer. So we started going back and forth and playing this game where like, uh, we asked these questions, but they weren't really, they were, they weren't looking for like rational information. And I thought that's originally what she wanted to do, but we were asking for like not rational information in the sense that like. Another question she uh, she asked me is if you were going to create if you could create any game, like what what would it be and what would be the rules and like and I had to like sit there and think about okay if I created if I created a game like what would it be and my game like involved like it had two actually back to the moon subject I was like okay we're on the moon we would have like each have there would be like a small explosion and balls would float everywhere and there would be red and blue balls and you don't know what direction they would go and you had to collect your balls and then bring them back and put them in a basket it's like silly but it forced me to really kind of think about like thinking about creating a game was like kind it was fun um and it was like this really interesting creative exercise but it was really it was really helpful and at the end of it like this this game where like I asked her a bunch of questions she asked me uh, a bunch of questions and they were just like these non-traditional not serious uh questions that that were fun and creative and they were exactly what she said imaginative they were so they were so helpful and they were good not only as like a bonding experience for the two of us, but I just felt so much better. Yeah, right. And I, I love the question of what game because then you get to see how the, how the person's mind works, right? So it's not just what answer they come up with, but like how they come up with their answer. I think that's really interesting too. Yeah, it was fascinating because I'm sure she learned a ton about me and I learned a ton about her, but... It, it kind of triggered from this initial question, but I think I thought originally, like I said, I started to recoil. I thought she was taking me, like, and ask me something really serious, and I, I was like, I'm just not in the mood to talk about this today. But uh, she took it into a, a completely different direction. And um, as you were describing this idea, asking open-air questions, I thought it was something that would was interesting because she did it. I would say that there's different types of open-air questions that you can ask somebody. Sometimes they're going to be more serious. Sometimes they're going to be more personal. Um, in this case, it was an intimate environment and it moved into a more imaginative place. And uh, it worked really well. Yeah, it sounds really fun. I mean, I think like a big dating don't for guys is don't ask the boring, like run-of-the-mill questions that women have been asked five million times. You know, get creative. Get imaginative, like you're saying ask things that they've never been asked before. Do you, can you give us a couple examples of, of things that guys could ask that are a little bit better than the standard? And you said standard questions. I'm, I'm assuming like, what do you do? Like, uh, where do you go to school? Whatever the traditional, where do you see yourself five years from now? I'm assuming that's what you're talking about. Is that true? Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, to not ask those questions. And yeah, I mean, it is funny to, to be like generating stock questions that are supposed to be really alive and interesting. Um, so I think that rather than, you know, coming up with a list of those because they might not really be applicable, applicable because the whole point is to follow the aliveness in the conversation, um, I think more of like a better formula to think about it for men would be notice the, the, the peaks of aliveness in the conversation. So notice when the woman gets really excited thinking, talking about something. And then when she does, you can ask her a question like, what do you love about that? Or what's exciting about that for you? Right? So those are two, those are two good ones that will have her open up and start talking more deeply about her experience regarding the topic. I, I usually will ask like, what's the greatest, what's the strangest, what's the weirdest, what's your the kind of biggest fear, yeah, craziest experience, what was the uh, most traumatic, whatever, like about asking extremes. I feel like that oftentimes uh, creates some type of emotional reaction and makes the conversation more interesting. The other thing that happened in that conversation I had with a girl that I'm dating is she started asking, she was asking me things that were completely unrelated. She asked me, for example, if you were going to make a fruit, if you were going to combine a fruit and a vegetable, what would it be? What, what would it, what would it be called and what would it look like? And what, how would it taste? Which it seems like, I mean, that's something I probably wouldn't ask somebody, uh, I first approached, um, because it takes quite a bit of thought, but somebody that you're intimate with, asking things that connecting to unrelated ideas. I mean, you can say fruit and vegetables are kind of unrelated, but the way that she phrased the question caused me again to like really begin to think and invest in a way that was fun into the relationship. It was just different. Yeah, creative. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I, I would say like if there's a tip, um, the two tips like I would give is one extremes, which is kind of what you were, you were talking about, um, because it causes an emotional reaction. What is the most exciting? What is the most passionate? And then also, uh, connecting ideas that are, you would think are unrelated that are, it becomes imaginative and it's a fun, playful way to kind of keep, keep the conversations interesting. Yeah. And I would also say just to follow your own curiosity, right? Because whatever you're most curious about, there will be life in that question. Yeah. So rather than asking like a stale, boring, already been done a million times question, ask something that you're genuinely curious about. So, and even, even a question that has been done a, a million times can have life in it if it's something that you're genuinely curious about. So something like, oh, what's your family like? That can be, that can actually have a lot of life in it if you're really genuinely curious about it. That's not like the most, creative, imaginative question. Especially if you find, you'll find just listening to the conversation that people will open up with about things that are emotionally charged and good or bad. I think as long as you don't judge them, uh, people will continue to open up about these, these topics. And, and when you're dating somebody they don't need to be perfect. And when somebody feel, realizes that they aren't perfect, like that they, or they don't have to be perfect around you, they'll continue to continue to open up. And then it gets more interesting. For sure. That's how you build a real relationship with somebody. So I think that's a good, a good point. I think we're kind of running low on time. Is there anything else, any other recommendations for the guys before we wrap up? Yeah. So three more things real quick. So one is, is open, is open up. So vulnerability is contagious, right? So the more, the more open and vulnerable you can be, then the more that, that she can get to know you. 
and the more that you can then get to know her and then intimacy ensues. So I think that's really important. Um, also, like we talked about before, listening closely to her body language cues because it will give you so much information. And then lastly, I also encourage people to ask feedback. Ask for feedback from your friends, your coach, family members um, on your strengths and weaknesses so that you can tweak them and adjust them. So ask them, you know, what do you think I'm really good at with interacting with people and where could I build more skill and what are things I could work on? So I think that feedback can be really scary to receive and I think it's a great practice to ask for it so that you can improve yourself. Well, Lani, this has been fascinating. Um, thank you for the ta- taking the time to talk to me. If you're listening, you want to learn more about Lonnie and her coaching. Uh, we're going to post some links on the Craft Charisma website and within the description of this podcast so you can find out more about her uh, easily. So thank you again for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much, Chris. It's dating coach Chris Lona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Charisma website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.